Amen. I'm so glad that you are here with us for the beginning of our series on history that matters. Our theme for the year is take the next step. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And as in my role as pastor at Grace Baptist Church, one of my jobs is to protect the flock. Amen. The way that the pastor protects the flock is not with a gun or or with military might. It's with teaching and letting you know where you are and what the truth is and what error is. So what we're trying to do this fall is for us to take the next step in our understanding of the world, to take our next step in the understanding of the world. And it's so important that we know how did we get where we are. Now, how many of you understand that we're in a little bit of a mess? Right. Is that obvious? And in every area, economically, uh, socially, morally, politically and religiously, this world is in a mess. Well, it didn't just happen overnight. There's a story to it. And that's what we're going to be looking at through this series. This morning's message, we're doing history that matters. Don't you like that? I'm going to have all of you write on the board 50 times. I will not learn false history. I will not learn false history. I will not learn false history. Go to our slide. We're going to be learning this morning about the two lines of church history. Two lines of church history. The first thing that I want to discern, though, is why is that important? Look at John chapter 8 with me. And let's start reading in verse 28. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man. Now, what's that speaking of? His cross, his crucifixion. When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. As He spake these words, many believed on Him. Now, how many of you think that's a good thing to do? Now, here, this is before Jesus Christ went to the cross. Now that Jesus Christ has been to the cross, He died for us. He was buried. He, he was in the, in, in the earth for three days and three nights. Then He rose from the dead proving that He was, He is, and He always will be God. Amen? Now, that happened. Then, 50 days later, the day of Pentecost took place. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit of God came down. And now the Holy Spirit indwells all of those who believe on Jesus Christ as their Savior. Do you all believe that? Well, now we've learned what the church is. That's where we start. But look at what the Bible says in verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Now notice the difference between belief and discipleship. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We submit to his lordship for salvation. And then we learn of him and follow him to be a disciple. Do you see that? And here's the result of that. Here's the result of biblical discipleship. And ye shall know the opinions. And you shall know the beliefs. Is that what it says? 
You shall know the church doctrines. And you shall know the 39 principles or the, what does it say? The truth. And the truth shall make you free. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us to understand the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I have some questions for you this morning as we begin. The first question is this. Is truth knowable? Here's another question. Is there a God? Has He revealed Himself to man? Has He revealed Himself to man in an understandable way? Or is it just a mystery? It's understandable. Has He revealed Himself in a way that can be understood by young and old alike? What did Jesus say? Unless you come to me as a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's an interesting thing. I love Grace Baptist Church. I love the, the because we are fulfilling God's plan for this age as a church. Um, we are not a church that is aimed only at the young or the middle class or the poor or the rich or any particular demographic. Do you know who our ministry is to? The world. And one of the things that I just love about Grace Baptist Church is, and I'm going to use a, a word that I hate to use in our culture. I love our diversity. You know, you know, when we look at Modern Thought next week, we'll probably look at that word diversity. The word diversity has come to mean that every idea is equal. Well, in one culture they say, love your neighbor. In another culture they say, eat your neighbor. Which one's better? You know, not all ideas are equal, amen? But one of the things that I love about Grace Baptist Church is our diversity. We have any demographic you can think of, they are here. You know, different races are here. Different economic stratas are here. Different educational levels are here. And that's exactly the people that Jesus Christ came to save, amen? It just doesn't matter. You know what I love? We're not really different. We're all one. We're all of one blood, and we all have one Savior, one faith, one Lord. Amen? One hope of His calling, according to Ephesians chapter 4. I love that about Grace Baptist Church. And I love it that there are all different kinds of people here, but there's only one faith. One faith. Look at the book of Jude with me. This verse will become very important as we look at our subject matter today. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the many kinds of salvation. What's it say? Now, let me stop right there. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Anyone heard of Mere Christianity? This is exactly what it was, Mere Christianity. It was the lowest common denominator of what you had to understand to be something like a Christian. And in that book, he said... Heaven is going to be like a hallway, and there's all different doors off of that hallway. There's the Catholic door, and there's the Anglican door, and there's the, the Baptist door, and, there's, and it doesn't matter which door you come through. Does that sound like common salvation? Now, how many of you understand that different religions teach different gospels? How many of you understand that? Well, apparently, in the Word of God, there's a common salvation. There's only one. There's 
How many names are there given among men whereby you must be saved? There's only one. There's only one. There's only one gospel. So look at what it says. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was how many times? Once delivered to the saints. See, we're not allowed to describe what kind of faith we want. We're not allowed to create our own way of following Christ. What, we're, uh, what we are commanded to do is to continue in the apostles' doctrine. Right? And, and it's very simple. If God, if truth is knowable, and God has revealed that truth to us in an understandable and and uh, easily understood way, then why are there so many different religious systems? Let me say this as we start. How many of you know someone that's not a Baptist, that loves God, is a godly person, they're going to be in heaven with us, and they're beneficial to the Lord's work? How many of you know people that are like that? Praise God. Me too. Me too. Um, the pastor, Kenny Ellis, that was up at uh, Northtown Church of God for quite a while. We'd run into each other at the hospital or whatever, and I really like him. He's a, he's a fine man. And he said to me one time, he said, man, I'm so glad that we can be friends. And I said, yeah, we're both going to be Baptist in heaven, so isn't that good? <laughs> he went like this to me, shook his head. He said, you will never change. I said, amen. <laughs> Here's the deal. As we go through this, and we're going to be talking about the history of some things, we're not saying, we're not saying that every group that we're talking about are bad people. But the Bible says, look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, that's important. If, you, if we as a body are going to continue and be obedient to God's command, we've got to put up with each other. That's what forbearing means. Then look at what it says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How many of you believe that God wants unity in His body? That's what we're endeavoring to do. But then it describes that body. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, many faiths, many baptisms. It's interesting how all of Christianity accepts one Lord. All of Christianity accepts one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. All of Christianity accepts that. But then when you get to the one faith, one baptism, now all of a sudden there is great, and here's that word again, diversity. Does that diversity honor God? We're going to discern that this morning. Now, before we dive in, let's make a couple of distinctions. And let me say this from the start. These services may be longer than normal. So if your pot roast burns, I'm sorry. 
Presbyterians beat us to, to, you know, Bob Evans. Sorry. Okay. Let's make some distinctions. Very important distinctions. If there is a body, and we're going to be looking at these two lines of church history, all right? You have this line, and you have this line, and there are some that are in here, in this area somewhere. We are here. But there are many in this area that preach the unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith alone, plus nothing. I'm thankful for every one of them that preach the gospel. As the Apostle Paul said, whether Christ is preached of contention or however he's preached, I thank God for that. Amen? We are thankful for that. But we're not talking about the gospel this morning. We're talking about the church. Do you all see the distinction? How many of you understand the distinction right there? Okay? So I'm very thankful for everyone that preaches the gospel. Now let me say this. Over here, this line right here, we got a real problem with this line. I'm going to give you something you may have heard before, um, but it'll probably be one of the most important things that you'll ever learn. Things that are different are not the same. That's amazing, isn't it? How many of you want your pharmacist to understand that? (laughs) Praise God. Um, Bob Curlis just got a new computer system, and I found out he's giving the wrong medicine to everybody. That's what he told me this. No, no, that's not what he said. Don't No, that's not what he said. Bob, that would be bad, wouldn't it? That would be very bad. It's interesting, those vagaries of truth really fall away when it comes to medicine. They really fall away when it comes to engineering. I don't want an open-minded person designing my airplane. Amen? I want somebody locked into the laws of physics. Right? So here's what we have. Truth. This is truth. AD 33, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And he left the apostles some instructions. And in the early church, all the way back in Acts Acts chapter 2, the Bible says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That is the beginning of the church. Uh, People always wonder, when did the church begin? Well, it began in an embryonic form with Jesus Christ. But Jesus and his disciples walking in Galilee did not look... Like this. Why? Jesus hadn't risen from the dead yet. Right? What were they doing? They were offering the kingdom, uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ's physical, literal kingdom to the nation of Israel. Israel rejected it. So Jesus Christ went to the cross. And what did he say? Before he died, the night before he died, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the what? The New Testament in my blood. So when Jesus Christ died, that was the end of the Old Testament. The New Testament began. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He comes and meets with his disciples. He walks with them for 40 days. And then he tells them, I'm going to ascend, and I want you to wait, to tarry, until you be endowed from, with power from on high. That happened in Acts chapter 2. After Acts chapter 2, now the gospel of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is being preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then God gives an interesting man to the church. His name was Paul. The Bible says that to Paul were revealed, was revealed the mystery of the church. And the mystery of the church, one of the mysteries of the church, 
was that there is not a distinction between Jew and Gentile. So let's say Chad here is Jewish. He's got the facial hair. So we'll go, Chad's a Jewish, and, and, and Patrick can't grow any. So he will say he's Gentile. So what the Bible says, one of the mysteries was that in the church, like Grace Baptist Church, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. If you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all brothers in Christ. There's no distinction. That was really important because the Jews were told they couldn't marry outside of the Jewish race. Why? Because the Messiah had to come through them. Well, the Messiah has come, so that's not significant anymore. Amen? God's not done with Israel. Don't miss that. That's not what I'm saying. The church did not replace Israel, but in the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek. But we're, we're together. We're one. So that is one of the things that, that was revealed to Paul as a mystery. The Apostle Paul defined the ordinances for us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. He explained what those things are and how they're to be administered in the church. So the church began with Paul, or, or with, with Jesus. It was empowered at Pentecost, and then it was ordered and structured and then propagated under the Apostle Paul. So that's where the church is. Why am I saying that? If you're going to study church history, the first thing that you need to know is what is a church? How many of you think that's probably a good idea? You know, we're going to study the history of airplanes. And then the guy starts writing about cowboys. How many of you understand those are two different things? A cowboy and an airplane. They're two different things. Okay? And it's so interesting... I have here, you can see some down here. This is a book. This is the History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff. This is the most famous of all of the histories. It has eight volumes. There's the rest of it down there. Philip Schaff was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant man. It's just amazing the amount of material that he put out. He was also really messed up. Listen to what he wrote. This is the introduction to volume one. History should be written from the original sources of friend and foe in the spirit of truth and love. Then he gives some Latin with malice toward none, with charity. Or I'm sorry, with malice towards none, with charity for all in clear, fresh, vigorous style. Malice toward none. Charity toward all. That's the way that history should be written. Okay. He goes on to say, Let the dead bury their dead. We prefer to live among the living and to record the immortal thoughts and deeds of Christ in and through his people, rather than dwell upon the outer hulls, the trifling accidents and temporary scaffolding of history, or give too much prominence to Satan and his, inter and his infernal tribe whose works Christ came to destroy. Okay, so here's what he's saying. He's going to write a history of the Christian church. And you have all of these volumes in the history of what he's calling the Christian church. See that? And Satan's nowhere to be found. Here, let, me, let me help you understand. Some of you are already there. Imagine I'm going to write a history of World War II. With no mention of Hitler. How many of you think that would be an accurate history? Be really rough, wouldn't it? I'm going to write the history 
of the Bolshevik Revolution with no reference to Lenin. What kind of a history would that be? Isn't that interesting? Imagine, I'm going to write the history of America, but the whole book is about Mexico. Well, wait a minute, we're getting closer. (laughs) Different subject. (laughs) Now listen. The problem and the reason we start with defining when the church began and talking about the apostles' doctrine is that's what this is. This is something else entirely. Something else completely. If God has revealed himself, if truth is knowable, and God has revealed the truth in an understandable way, why are there so many different churches? And, and what do those churches disagree on? Think about this. They disagree on what a church is. They disagree on who the members of the church are. What the leadership of the church is. What the gospel is. They disagree on whether or not people are saved for eternity. They disagree on whether or not when you die, the judgment follows. Now, how many of you think the Bible gives us some answers on those subjects? Seriously. Well, then why do people disagree on those subjects? That's what we're looking at today. That's what we're looking at today. There are two lines of church history. All right, so now, let's just just do a quick overview. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, 33 A.D. From that point on, the church began. The church consisted of called-out assemblies. Isn't that right? Called-out assemblies of born-again, baptized believers. In this, in this area right here, right here, between there and there, you will not find anybody's that are called a church where... The members have not been scripturally baptized by immersion following a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear what I just said? You would not find that anywhere. They also believed in something called the autonomy of the local church. There was was not a, a group of churches that had a hierarchy. Once the apostles were gone, there was no hierarchy over the churches. It did not exist. They were local assemblies of born-again baptized believers meeting for the specific purpose of carrying out the Great Commission, studying the Word of God, observing the ordinances, and then, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, and doing all things whatsoever the Lord commanded. That's what a church was. That's all that a church was from there to there. Every church history, even shafts, I've got a whole room full of books on church history, literally a room full of books on church history. All of them talk about the simplicity of the apostolic faith. And it is pretty simple. Amen? So, they all began there. Then what happened? We have, this is the true line of church history. This is a false line of church history. 
What happened between 325 and 500? Well, there was a man, his name was Constantine. In 320, at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, he had a vision. Right before the battle, he had a vision. And he saw it in Greek. It had been translated into Latin for the people that spoke Latin. And it said, in this sign conquer. And it was the vision of a Latin cross. And so he had all of his soldiers put that Latin cross on the shield. And so they won that battle. From that point on, Constantine considered himself a Christian. All right. He was never he never actually made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he was never scripturally baptized. All right. Now, let's stop right there. Does a person have to be scripturally baptized to be saved? No. That confusion didn't happen until right here. That didn't happen here. Okay. so he he never did trust Jesus Christ as his personal savior, at least in any of the records that we have of him. But what he did was, after that, in 313, 312, Battle of Milvian Bridge, 313, he gave what was called the, the Edict of Milion, and what that did was it gave some religious tolerance to people in, in the Roman Empire. Now, if you read in here, this is when Christians became free to worship. No, they were free to be a part of the state church. In this period of church history, you had a marriage of church with the state. Well, these people understood you can't have that because we don't have a physical kingdom. We have a spiritual kingdom. Jesus Christ establishes the physical kingdom. We, through preaching the gospel, perpetuate Jesus Christ's spiritual kingdom because he is coming back to establish his own. Here, that's what these people believed. Right in here, when you had Constantine with the marriage of church and state, there was a man who was called the Bishop of Hippo, not Hippopotamus, the Bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. He became what is known as the father of the Roman Catholic Church. Who knows what his name is? Augustine. Protestants call him Augustine. Catholics know him as St. Augustine. How many of you have heard of him? He is the father of the Roman Catholic Church. He is the one who introduced the idea of of worshiping Mary. He introduced the idea of being saved through baptism. He introduced the idea of sprinkling babies because they're going to die. And if if the only way they can go to heaven is to be under grace, and the only way to get that grace is to be baptized, then we need to start sprinkling babies. That happened right here under Augustine. But Augustine did something else. He had written a book called The City of God. How many of you have heard of Augustine's City of God? You go into any bookstore in the world, almost, and you'll find that book today. What he did there was that is where he condoned the marriage of church and state. And he was going to establish, this is where Christians, through the preaching of the gospel and through military might, will conquer the world and get it ready for Jesus to return. That's where that idea comes from, from Augustine. Well, where did Augustine get it from? Well, right about in here, there was a guy who lived between the late 100s and early 200s. His name was Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, Origen. Origen was nuts. And I say that most charitably. The guy was crazy. He was an obsessive, compulsive, and he was... He was, I think that 
he is the perfect example of the, of the mad genius. It said that he wrote so much, no one could ever possibly read it. Because what he would have, he would have um, stenographers around him, and he would speak to them all day. Well, he didn't believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was God. He wanted to remove that from the Bible. He didn't believe that all the Bible was true, so he wanted to correct it. So what he did was he took the Greek New Testament, origin, right in here, and he changed it, now are you ready for this? In 30,000 places. Now, how many of you think that's a lot? 30,000 changes in your Bible. He is also the father of that idea of Christianity conquering the world. That's where Augustine got it. He got it from Origen. So from that point on, now you have a church-state monstrosity that starts right here. Remember, 313, the Edict of Millian, was supposed to give religious liberty to Christians. Well, now the Bible has been corrupted. Over here, though, going all the way back, you had the early Christians. You had the early church, of course. After the early church, they began to take names based on their leaders. There was a group of Christians here called the, all the way back here in the 100s, called the Montanists. Anyone here ever heard of Tertullian? Tertullian was a Montanist. These are people that believed in the autonomy of the local church, the authority of the scriptures. They believed in salvation by grace through faith alone. They believed just like we believe. But they also believed in something else. It was identified by Augustine as a heresy, and it's called Chiliism. Now, it doesn't mean they liked chili. Chili sound good right now? I'm getting hungry myself. That's not talking about chili. That's, that's from the Latin for 1,000 years. They believed in the 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you believe Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign for 1,000 years? Yeah, just like them. How many of you know that's a heresy? You see, Augustine, that is one of the, the indictments against a group of Baptists right in here called the Donatists. They're in Numidia, northern Africa. And you have Augustine as the Bishop of Hippo in northern Africa. The Pope Damasus, the early, one of the early popes, sent him to stop the influence of the Donatists. So this kind and wonderful and gracious man, Augustine, who is loved by Catholics and Protestants alike, killed 30,000 of them. He killed them, 30,000. Documented. It's in here. Killed 30,000 of them. Now, how many of you think that might be a problem? Right? People call us mean. Because we make jokes about, you know, Mexico and America. Now, so here you have these early Montanists. Now, let me tell you something that's so important. How, could, how, did there end up with, how did we end up with two lines of church history? Because we end up with two different Bibles. See, the Montanists, what they did was they began translating the Bible early on. And they translated it first before the year 150. They translated it into the Old Latin. Now, how many of you have heard of the Latin Vulgate? Heard of the Latin Vulgate. That's not what we're talking about here. This is the Old Latin um, if you saw the movie, The Passion of Christ, they, they spoke Latin, old Latin in that movie. They were trying to, to portray it. That's just a Roman Catholic interpretation of what was going on because they weren't speaking old Latin. They were speaking Aramaic. In your Bible, when Jesus Christ says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's Aramaic. That's what they were speaking. Old Latin, 
and Aramaic. The Montanists, so that they could give the gospel. It is impossible to be a Baptist without a Bible. Can't be one. If the first of our Baptist doctrines is the Bible is our sole authority, then you've got to have a Bible to be a Baptist. So what the Montanists did, because they were going everywhere under persecution, preaching the gospel all the way back in the first century, they translated the Bible into, into Old Latin. That Old Latin was used for a thousand years to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is in this line right here, the Old Latin. That's uh, before 150. 157, there's another translation that's made. It's called Syriac. Syriac. Syriac was Thomas Armitage in 1887. He wrote this. The Syriac is considered by many scholars to better preserve the words of our Lord than the Greek manuscripts themselves. How could he say that? Because Syriac was so close to Aramaic that it would have sounded just like what Jesus was saying when he said his words. The Syriac translation was used for almost a thousand years right here to preach the gospel. So here you have the Montanists, then the Novatians, the Montanists and the Novatians and the Donatists. Montanists and Novatians used the Old Latin and they used the Syriac. The Donatists used the Old Latin. Do you know how we know the Donatists used the Old Latin? Because we have the letters they wrote back and forth to Augustine. And they are all in that old Latin, quoting the scriptures, telling him to stop killing us. It's just amazing. Let me read one thing to you. Let me say this. I was talking about that Syriac Bible. This is what the Novatians did. According to Frederick Scrivener, one of the 19th century's greatest textual scholars, the old Latin version was likely translated from the Greek roughly 157. Metzger adds, during the third century... That's the 200s. Many old Latin versions circulated in North Africa, Europe, including distinctive versions which were current in Italy, Gaul, and Spain. Where did those translations come from? They came from early churches who are, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. These things right into thee, hoping to come into thee shortly. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What is the truth? John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So those churches were preserving and disseminating the Bible and translating it in all different languages. That's what's going on right here. Well, this line can't have that. So Origen starts corrupting the Greek. Then here, around 400, you have a man named Jerome. Jerome is ordered by Damasus to correct the old latin that becomes the vulgate now listen what jerome did the, the we, his his own biography says that he exhausted his purse to buy origen's works so he took origen had a translation of the bible with 30,000 changes it was called a hexapla it had six different columns and the fifth column was the one that he that origen trusted the most jerome took that fifth column and corrected the old Latin that's being preached here for a thousand years. He corrected it, changing it, now listen to this, in 6,000 places. 6,000. How many of you have ever wondered why the Roman Catholic Bible is different than yours? How many of you have ever wondered why? Jerome. 
Jerome, why did he have to do that? Because there were so many doctrinal differences between here and here that if they were going to claim to have any kind of authority from the Bible, they had to change the Bible to believe to match what they believed. Well, over here, we just kept preaching the same old gospel, same old gospel through churches, preaching, winning people to Jesus Christ. Someone said about these people, they preached like prophets. They lived like saints and they died like flies because they were killed, millions and millions and millions of them. We talked about the, the early Montanists, then the Novatians, then the Donatists. I was going to read you what one of the Donatist pastors wrote to Augustine. Um, oh, this was the edict from Augustine. Uh, that person's rebaptizing and the person rebaptized should be punished with death. What a great man of God. Now, here's the deal. You might be here this morning and disagree with the, the application of church doctrines. You might disagree with us. You know what I say? Praise God, man. I'm glad you're here. Let's go have a cup of coffee. You can buy. <laughs> We're not going to kill you. I don't understand that. We're going to look at that, the history of modern terrorism, Islam and the Crusades, the history of modern terrorism. That's one of our subjects that we're coming to. But we've got to build this other, these other things through it before. So here's one of the letters. This is Petillion. He wrote to, and you know who preserved this for us? Uh, Philip Schaff. I have in my office the anti-Nicene, post-Nicene church fathers. He collated all the writings of all the early Christians that we have available. I've got them in my library. Everything that was written, I've got them in there. What I'm going to read to you is from that. This is the preserved history of Augustine against the Donatists. Here's what Petillion, one of the Donatist pastors, wrote. Think you to serve God by killing us with your hand? Ye err, if ye poor mortals think this. God has not hangmen for priests. Christ teaches us to bear wrong, not to revenge it. The Donatist bishop Gaudentius says, God appointed prophets and fishermen, not princes and soldiers, to spread the faith. How did God-honored Augustine respond? I know nothing about your martyrs. Martyrs? Martyrs to the devil. They are no mar there are no martyrs out of the church. Beside, it was their obstinacy. They killed themselves. See? Outside of the church. If you're going to study church history, you need to know what a church is. Look at the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Now, let's go to Galatians, chapter 1. I marvel, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now, let me stop right here. So what Paul is saying, and we're going to read on in a second, but what Paul is saying is you have two options here, the grace of God and another gospel. You see that? There's only one true gospel. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? And we've really gotten that messed up. In the 20th century, you had even independent Baptists who made the external so important that if you didn't look a certain way, then you probably weren't a Christian. How many of you know people like that? Uh, I was at a meeting this week, and there was a preacher there, and he had a book table. And on the book table, I, I almost had a heart attack. I'm telling you, I almost had a heart attack. He's got Amish books on his book table from Christian Light, the, the Amish publishing house. Now, you all might not know this. You might not have studied it. Amish doctrine is another gospel. It is just what Paul was describing in the book of Galatians, adding your good works to the gospel. Uh, we were over in Amish country uh, last week, week before last, and this guy was going to give us a buggy ride. You know, the Amish lady divorced her husband because he drove her buggy, right? We were going we were gonna to go on a, on a buggy ride. And Laura was doing something, and me and the kids were in the buggy. And uh, it's this wonderful, kind Amish man. His name is Eli. And I said, Eli, I'm a Baptist preacher. And he said, yeah, yeah we, our, our beliefs are very similar. And I said, I was wondering, in your faith, what does a person have to do to go to heaven? Well, you believe in Jesus. and You believe in Jesus Christ. I think he said his resurrection. Jake, did he say his resurrection? You have to believe in the resurrection. He said, and then you have to live a good life. Anybody here living a good life? If any man say he hath no sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. And he said, is that what you believe? And I said, well, we would be a little different than that. <laughs> I said, we believe that what the Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by His mercy, He saved us. And He said, well, we believe that too. You can't have both. Let's look at the text. Galatians chapter 1. I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Do you see that? There's not really another gospel. But there be some that trouble you and would... What's that word? Hmm. The gospel of Christ. So another way to say it would be gospel perverts. Would pervert. It's amazing how fitting that is with this line. I understand it got really quiet right here all of a sudden. How many of you have heard of the perversion going on in this line. How many of you have heard of that? And see, that's only in the 20th century. You study the history of what went on in the convents and monasteries. Do you, do you know, under the Albigensians, in the, around, the, around 1,000, there were a group of Baptists, you know, right in here, right about there, called the Albigenses. Oh, by the way, these people, they got in the city of Beziers under St. Dominic. Anyone heard of St. Dominic? Did you know that St. Dominic is the father of the Crusades? Well, let me say it better. St. Dominic is the father of the Inquisition. He was sent by Pope Innocent III to burn the Albigenses. So they got 60,000 of them in the city of Beziers on one day in 1100, 
in the 1100s. One day, 60,000 of them, killed them all. The soldier said to the, the, their leader, to the papal legate, he said, well, well, there's some people in here that, that might be of the church, talking about the Catholic church. He said, what should we do? The papal legate said, kill them all. The Lord will know those who are his own. Does that sound like perversion? Right? But during this time of the Albigenses, there was a common saying among the people. If somebody said something repulsive to them, they'd say, I'd rather be a priest. You know, you want to eat that mud? I'd rather be a priest. That's what they would say. That's from history. That's not, that's not a Baptist preacher throwing aspersions on this. We must understand, this is history. You can have your own opinions. You're not allowed to have your own facts. Right? This is history. And the Bible says if anybody brings another gospel, look at what it says. What are they doing when they trouble you with another gospel? What are they doing to it at the end of verse 7? Pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now you understand that means damned to hell, right? And we said before, or as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now remember what happened. Look at verse chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 7. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, that's the gospel to the Gentiles, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Peter preached to the Jews. Paul preached to the Gentiles primarily. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is Peter, James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So who are the heathen? The Gentiles. All right, remember this is Acts chapter 13, when they laid their hands on them, sent them out to preach the gospel. Now look at verse 10. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. What was he doing? He was acting like the separated Jews and wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. What was he saying? He was allowing for works to be added to the gospel. He was allowing for Jewish law to be added to the gospel. And what did Paul do? He withstood Peter to his face and then wrote it in a letter that God preserved for 2,000 years for us to read at Grace Baptist Church in October of 2010. Do you see how important it is to confront people, not only that teach false doctrine, but that practice things that violate right doctrine? Do you see that's what happened? And this is the book of Galatians. Remember what Martin Luther said about the book of Galatians? He, he held it. He said, it's, it's my Catherine. Catherine was his wife. It was his favorite book in the Bible. He loved it because it's about grace. Wait a minute. Damning people to hell with standing people to their face in the book of grace? Yeah. 
Because grace that takes away from the gospel is not grace. It's perversion that sends people to hell. That's why this becomes so important. There's a true line of church history. Now, what happened in 1517? 1054, that's the great schism. 1054, there was a split, and you had the, the, the Roman Catholic Church, and then out of that split off the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Greek Orthodox, 1054, the Great Schism. Here, 1517. What happened in 1517? Huh? Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, Diet of Worms, October 31st. He nails his, or the, before the Diet of Worms, he, he nails his 95 thesis to the door of the Castle Church, Wittenberg, Germany, okay? And that begins what's called the Protestant Reformation. Well, there are people here that say that Martin, not here, but people in our time that say that Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel. That means that from here to here, nobody got saved. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So according to that position, if Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel, and that's what started the Reformation, then from here to here, the gates of hell was prevailing against the church of Jesus Christ. No, the true church was doing just fine. We're doing just fine, being persecuted. But in every age, you had people. Around 300, you had Patrick. He goes to Ireland and preaches the gospel. He was a Baptist. He translated the Bible uh, from the Latin into their languages. His grandson in the faith, Columba, who went to Scotland, made 300 personal copies of the Latin Bible in his own hand so he could preach the gospel. Can't be a Baptist without a Bible. You go down here, you had the, the, the Donatists. And after the Donatists, you had the Paulicians. The Paulicians started with a guy, a young man named Constantine. He was given, he, he gave room and board to someone coming from another city. And that guy gave him the, the books of Paul, the writings of the book of Paul. You know, you could have a pretty good church if all you had were Paul's epistles. Isn't that interesting? You know what they were called? The Paulicians. Because they had the writings of the book of Paul. Well, they ended up with the whole Bible, but they started preaching the gospel. They, took and they translated the Bible into about 15 different languages out of that old Latin Bible, the Paulicians. Under the Paulicians in a city called Tapris in Armenia was the first city of any kind to have religious liberty. The Baptists had gained control through, uh, not through war, because Baptists don't do that. But they had gained control in the government. And uh, so they had complete religious liberty. Muslims, Jews other forms of Christianity, all complete religious liberty, around 900. That city was destroyed after about 200 years, and there was not liberty anywhere again until you got to about 1635, the United States and Rhode Island. Now, here you have 1517. What happened here, though? Notice these lines converge again. You had the Reformation, where people started preaching the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not all of them. If you look at the Augsburg Confession... Under Melanchthon and Luther, they say that baptism is required for salvation. Go look at it today. It's still available, Augsburg Confession of Faith, written by Philip Melanchthon, approved by Martin Luther. It says that baptism is required by faith. It also says we are not like the Donatists. We are not like the Anabaptists. That's what it says. So, anyway. 1611, what happens? Well, all the way back here in 1517, a little bit before that, 1452, Gutenberg Prince's first Bible. After you have the invention of movable type, then you have the Enlightenment comes, all of this taking place in here because of the printed page. But the most important printed page came in 1535. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English. Of course, he was killed. Then you have the Matthews Bible, then the Coverdale Bible, then the Geneva Bible, then the, bishops, then the Great Bible, then the Bishop's Bible. And then you came to 1611, 
And after the Hampton Court Conference of 1604, they translated the Bible into English again based on those previous translations, and now you have the King James Bible of 1611. Here's what happens. (coughs) Towards the end of the 1400s, early 1500s, you have the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Why is that important? Because here, at 1516, you have Desiderius Erasmus, he collates the scriptures and comes up, with, comes up with what is later called the received text. Martin Luther takes that text of the, the Greek New Testament, translates it into German. That, that New Testament is preached all over. In, in the early 1520s, it's printed by Froschauer in Zurich, Switzerland. And those early Baptists, Felix Manns, Balthazar Hubmeier, Conrad Grable, George Blarock, they go all through Switzerland preaching the gospel. Of course, they're all dead by 1527, killed by either the Protestants or the Catholics. But the gospel started there. So then what you end up with here, you have a split. As the Reformation takes place, you have two lines that take place in the Anglican Church. 1534, you have uh, Henry VIII wants to divorce his wife, Catherine, because she can't have kids that'll live. And he wants to marry his uh, girlfriend, Anne Boleyn. So he petitions the Pope to have the Pope annul his marriage. The Pope says no. He's taking great stand for truth and won't do it. So Henry VIII severs the relationship of England with Rome. And that was better for England anyway because they were second-class citizens in Rome anyway. Of the 50 bishops, only one of them could be British, English. And so they were feeling bad. And so Henry VIII makes himself, 1534, the head of his own church, and that's the Anglican church. Now, was that Protestant or Catholic? Well, it depends on who the king was, because the king was the head of the church, as opposed to the king Jesus being the head of the church. You see? So now we've got a problem. You're going to ask somebody here in this period, are you Protestant or Catholic, who's an Anglican? They're going to say, okay, who's the king? Who's the queen? How many of you see that's a problem? All right. So what happens, though, is Elizabeth comes to the throne. Good Queen Bess. She comes to the throne. A little before that, you have the defeat of the Spanish Armada. The reason the defeat of the Spanish Armada was so important, here you have all those Bibles have been translated. But the problem is all of these Protestant places. I mentioned Erasmus. He has his text. Within 100 years of Erasmus compiling his text, the Bible's translated into 1,600 languages. How many of you think that might have something to do with the Reformation? (laughs) That had everything to do with it. That's what it was about, the Word of God, not about people. Okay, so now what happens? The problem, though, is all of these cities that have the Bible now, they're all still within marching distance of Rome. So what happens when England becomes the ruler of the sea? How many of you ever heard of this? The sun never sets on the British Empire. What happens is you have Western mind and Western thought right here from here on controlling 85 percent of the globe. 85% 85% of the globe. Do you, know what the, do you know what the language of trade was? Initially French. What did it turn into? English. Now you've got the Bible. You've got the Bible, and so what happens is, you see how you have this, you have the lines diverge, and here they come back together. This line stays, you have the Roman Catholic Church still fighting. Remember what happened here after the Reformation. What did the Catholics do? What did they call what the Catholics did? The Counter-Reformation. That's when they declared that the uh, Council of Trent, anybody who believes in salvation by grace through faith alone is anathema, damned to hell. That's what they said. How many of you understand we believe in salvation by grace through faith alone? Then you've been damned to hell. Aren't you glad God's your judge, not this? 
Okay, so Council of Trent. Uh, the, another interesting thing that happened at Trent was those 14 books that are between Malachi and Matthew in the Roman Catholic Bible called the Apocrypha, those all of a sudden became canonical or inspired. They were never considered that before. Isn't that interesting? Those are some of the things that begin happening. Why? Because the Catholic Church is fighting back against the Reformation. So what happens for this period of time, from about 1611 through 1881, about 250 years, all of a sudden you have Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and conservative Anglicans and Methodists all preaching the gospel out of a King James Bible. And what happened? Every historian will talk about that period as being the greatest period of missionary expansion in the history of the world. Well, how did we get to where we are right now? Remember, what's going on here in this time, right here? They're laying off policemen. Bars are closing. You have the, this is when the great utopians are taking place. H.G. Wells and this great rise of humanism. They're saying the world is getting better. That's what that whole thing was about. H.G. Wells wanted to kill himself after World War I because his utopian ideas didn't work. How did we get here? Well, here you have these two lines of church history that are so important. You have these people believing that Jesus Christ is going to come and establish His kingdom. So we are supposed to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't kill people. We preach the gospel. We just preach the gospel. Get them saved, baptize them, train them up, send them out. Get them saved, baptize them, train them up, send them out. Get them saved, baptize them, train them up, send them out. Amen? That's been going on for 2,000 years. Over here, you have a joining of message. Have you ever wondered why there became this great unity among pretty much all faiths? You know, you had the great fundamentalist meetings. And at the great fundamentalist meetings, you had Presbyterians and Anglicans and Methodists and, and Baptists, some. Why? Because the basis of the message became very similar right in here. Salvation by grace through faith and Jesus Christ is coming again to establish his kingdom. That became the message. What happened here? Why did the lines diverge? Do you know that in 2009, the Anglican Church and the Roman Catholic Church began accepting members of each other again? 2009. What happened? These churches are coming back together. 1984. Great document. Evangelicals and Catholics together. ECT document, 1984. This is leaders. Charles Colson. J.I. Packer, um, Roman Catholics, all coming together, evangelicals and Catholics together. Unity, unity. What's happening? Right here. All of these that came out are going back in. Go to the next slide. And we end up with a one world church. And Jesus Christ is going to come back and take the true believers who are preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone up in the rapture, and there's going to be a one-world church. This is found for us in Revelation chapter 17. Why did this happen? Man, we had people that came out of that. Why are they going back? See this guy right here? Philip Schaff? Philip Schaff was the editor of this. This is the first edition of the book that he edited. 
Let me give you the introduction. This is chapter 5. Defects of the King James Version. It's excellent, but defective. Do you know what that is? That's the history of the translation. And this is the revised New Testament of 1881. What happened? I've told you there are two lines of church history. There's a true line. In each of these cases, you had the original Greek manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts, Aramaic manuscripts. Then you had translations that went into Syriac and Old Latin. Then those were carried on and they were translated. Then they were printed about 1452. It started to be printed. 1535, translated into English. Get to 1611 and it's disseminated around the world. Greatest period of missions as the pure, unadulterated word of God is preached. What happened over here? Origen corrupted the text. Jerome brought it into Latin. Around that same period of time, around 1,000 right here, the Syriac Peshitta. Peshitta means pure. That was corrupted. And so over here you have this false line of manuscripts. That false line of manuscripts never got over here. Um, when you read of the Paulicians, the Paulicians, we have their writings. No, I'm sorry, the... Um, the Albigenses, we have the writings of the Albigenses, and they use the Old Latin. And the Scrivener, one of the, the, the key men on the Bible text in the 1800s, he looked at that, that uh, Albigensian text, and it said it had, it had escaped the errors of the Vulgate. So you had that true line of texts. Well, when that's translated, then you've got the pure line. Anything that is translated accurately from that line is the pure line of manuscripts. Over here, around 1850, you had this thing called German higher criticism. And that came in. That's when men started deciding that they were qualified to sit in judgment on the manuscripts and determine which words are true and which words are false. There is a, there is a manuscript that's found in St. Catherine's Orthodox Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai. That manuscript is called Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus, I've seen it at the British Museum. They had it open to Mark chapter 16. The last 12 verses of Mark chapter 16 are not there. It's a blank spot. So there were a group of men called Westcott and Hort. They developed what they called a critical text, and that was, it was given to the translators of this 1881, but it wasn't actually released until 1881. And what did they do? They removed the last 12 verses of Mark from your Bible. So if you look at the footnote in your Bible now, they'll say it's not there. 1 John 5, 7, the greatest verse on the Trinity in the Bible. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. They removed it from the text. The greatest verse on salvation by grace through faith and believers' baptism following it, Acts eight thirty seven. You have the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch says to Philip, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And they both went down into the water and he baptized him. That whole thing, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They took it out. It's not in their Bible. It's not there. There are more than 30,000 changes. Wait a minute, that 30,000 changes. Where have we heard that before? Origin. 30,000 changes in the text. There are more than 
5,200 extant manuscripts that agree with the King James 1611 text. More than 5,200 complete manuscripts. Do you know how many agree with the 1881? Three. You've got to take your brain out and play with it. To believe. When God promised in Psalm 12, 6 and 7, that He would preserve His Word forever, that that Bible was lost until 1881. See, the same kind of thinking that says that Martin Luther rediscovered the Bible believes that Westcott and Hort rediscovered... That, that, the, the same kind of thinking that says that Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel is the thinking that says that Westcott and Hort rediscovered the Bible. See, there are two lines of church history. Each line has a church. Each line has a Bible. So where did all these churches come from? Well, you have the Anglican church that came out 1534. Out of the Anglican church, you have a man named John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican bishop. He had a younger brother named Charles Wesley. They both died Anglican bishops. But they believed in salvation by grace through faith. John Wesley preached the gospel with power. Amen? I'm glad that he did that. But he never came out of the Anglican church. After he died, 1791, there were a group of people that wanted to remember the things that he did. So they followed Wesley's methods and they became known as the Methodists. The core difference between the Methodists and the Anglicans was the Methodists believed in holiness. How many of you heard of the holiness movement? The holiness movement came out of the Methodist movement. Susanna Wesley, John Wesley, John Charles Wesley's mother, had had them read the Roman Catholic mystics when they were little boys. John Wesley was saved from a fire, and so he believed that he was as one, a brand plucked from the fire. He believed in a personal experience, and he spent his whole life looking for those deeper personal experiences. So he believed in holiness. He believed in salvation by grace, which is great. Amen? But he also believed in a second working of the Holy Ghost, where then the Holy Spirit comes upon you at some other point. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he has none of his. The Bible says we're, that, we're, uh, that we, in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. After that, you believe the gospel of peace. After that, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Bible makes it very clear. You get saved, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. There is not that second working of the Holy Ghost. It's not how much of the Holy Ghost you have. It's how much of, the Holy, how much of you the Holy Ghost has. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what sanctification is. So you had the Methodists who begin teaching that. Out of the Methodist movement, you had a man named Charles Parham. Parham. Parham is the father of what would be called the Assemblies of God movement. He came out of that Methodist movement. At the same time, he started a Bible college. A man named William Seymour comes to this Bible college. He learns his methods. What, what was Parham known for? He believed that the sign of, the, of being a true church, a true believer, is that you receive the Holy Ghost and you speak with tongues. That was the beginning of the modern charismatic movement. It didn't really take off, though, until 1906. Seymour goes to Los Angeles. He starts preaching, and they have what's called the Azusa Street Revival. That is the father. That is the beginning of the Pentecostal, the modern charismatic Pentecostal movement. That all came out of Methodism, which came out of Anglicanism, which came out of the Catholic Church. Then you also had Luther. 
Well, Luther had the Lutherans. At the same time, a little bit after Luther, you had John Calvin in Geneva. You had John Knox in Scotland. They are the fathers of what's called the Presbyterian movement. Now, Lutheran, Presbyterian, uh, Methodist. Many great preachers of the Word of God from those groups. Amen? Many great preachers of the Word of God. But there was a problem. Why is it that all... Now, now, now don't... Now, I know I've gone long. How many of you would agree with me that I've gone long? Okay. How many of you understand that the Anglican Church is gone? How many of you understand that? Now, there are still some conservative Presbyterian churches. Some of them are called Bible Presbyterian churches. There's some really good Bible Presbyterian churches as far as preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the word of God, discipling people. I know people that are involved in those churches. Anybody else know some people that are involved in those churches? Praise God. But the Presbyterian Church USA is gone. Gone. Just ordained a homosexual woman to be their head person in California. How many of you think that's a problem? You see? The Methodist Church is gone. There are still conservative Methodist congregations in different places. How many of you know some of them? You know some of those people. I'm thankful for that. The leadership is gone. It is gone. There's a big controversy right now because in the association that the Methodist Church here in Sydney is a part of, they've just uh, called a, a homosexual to be treasurer. How many of you have heard about that? It's a big controversy in this area. Can I ask you a question? What are the chances of Grace Baptist Church having a homosexual treasurer? There is not a chance. How does that happen? Well, because saved people don't do that. It doesn't happen. So here's why this becomes so important. One of the key components of this line... Well, first of all, they believe every word of the Bible. This line doesn't. Now, remember what I said. This group came over here and they did. After the Reformation, many of them believed every word of the Bible. Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians. Um, out of the Methodists in uh, 1906 came the Nazarenes. They were a part of that, that Wesleyan holiness movement. They, those people all believed every word of the Bible. And God used them greatly to preach the gospel. Amen? So how did it all end up back over here? You understand that's where it's going. We like to say, well, wait a minute. I know a, a, a Methodist or an Anglican that's right with God. They're, they're good. Well, so do I. Go talk to their leadership. See how they're doing. Okay? How did this happen? Well, over here, one of the key things is born-again church membership. You can't be a member of Grace Baptist Church without making a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, manifesting a holy life, and then following the Lord in believer's baptism. You can't be a member here without that. And you cannot vote or have anything to do with our church business if you're not a member. You can come, you can be a part, you can even serve the Lord here. But you can't be a part of the leadership without being born again, baptized, and identifying with our doctrine. Amen? Let me show you why. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Thank you for your patience. I know this has been a little longer than normal. Not as long as the football game you'll watch this afternoon. Some of the hitting has been as hard. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. 
Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You may be sitting out there. Well, I don't agree with you. Great. There's lots of churches in town. We wish you the best. We love you. We want God to work in your life. You can't be in leadership here if we don't agree. I remember one time I did the Y Baptist thing here. It's when I first did it. And Maureen had a group of people here doing a, um, a drama thing. So we had a lot of guests. And there was a, a preacher from another, I can't remember if he was Lutheran or Methodist. And he came up to me after the service and said, I want you to know, I don't agree with what you said tonight. I just smiled. I said, well, if you did, then you'd be a Baptist. <laughs> you don't have to agree with me. <laughs> you know, Is that, isn't that the truth? You know what that's called? That's one of the other things that has marked this side. Individual soul liberty. You're a free moral agent to believe anything you want. You want to believe the moon's made of Swiss cheese? Go right ahead. You can believe anything you want. You want to believe that Mary will get you into heaven? Go ahead and believe that. Go ahead. If, if you want to believe that whatever, you know, you name it. You want to believe we're going to be reincarnated and I can come back as a frog. You can believe that, but you can't be here. You can't be here. So now you have the attack on the Word of God that leads back to the One World Church. Can I give you an example of how that happens and I'll be done? Somewhere in between Knucklehead at the meeting having Amish books on his table. I'm mad at myself. I should have thrown a fit right there. I said, what in the world are you doing? I should have withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. What was he doing? He was adding works. He was bringing people into the law. I didn't finish this. The reason that this guy likes those Amish books, they're separated people. What, are you going to have Muslim books on there next? Separation for what reason? We're separated unto Christ. Amen? How many of you think a Christian ought to be different than the world? You believe that? But if you think that difference is what saves you, you're going straight to hell. Jesus Christ by grace. That's the only way we go to heaven. I was at, uh, I was meeting someone before that meeting, Friday night. So I was at a great and holy place, Starbucks. And um, the nectar of the gods. And uh, so I'm walking in with a stack of books. And I, this guy, I noticed this guy looks up from his computer and he's kind of staring at my books. You know, how many of you do that? You see somebody reading something, you want to know what it is. Well, I was wondering why he was looking. So I walked by his table and saw what he was reading. And it was a book about something about Jesus and kingdom or something like that. Well, he's from the Brethren Church. Now, there are two different kinds of Brethren Churches. There are the Plymouth Brethren, which are very close to... They're started by John Nelson Darby in about 1830. Um, they'd be very similar to what we believe. There's another church. There's Swiss Brethren. And out of the Swiss Brethren, you're going to have Mennonites and Anabaptists and German Baptists and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the, the, the uh, Mennonites and Amish and all of that, the, that, that line of the Brethren. So this guy is going to Bethel Seminary in Indiana working on his master's. And he was writing on why we need to stop persecuting the Palestinians. 
and stop the Jews from taking the Palestinians' land. Um, <laughs> so I started talking to him about that. Um, and I said, Genesis chapter 12 is still true. Now, we're not saying that everything Israel does over there is right. Amen? They've done some bad stuff to the Palestinians. But the simple fact is, God said, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Is that what the Bible says? So I told him, I still believe, I said, I'm a literalist, and I believe that Genesis 12 is still in effect. And he said, well, I'm not a literalist. Well, no kidding, that's why you're for Palestine. And I asked him, have you ever heard of Transjordan? And he said, well, I'm not sure. I said, you really ought to study the history of this. Transjordan is the Palestinian state. They have a Palestinian state. It's called Transjordan. They've got one. Well, I didn't know that. He's writing his master's thesis, and he didn't know that. So, I asked him, why aren't you a literalist? You ready for the answer? Man, there's so many translations out there. How would you ever know what's right? You know what I said? Man, I agree with you 100%. And I quoted Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman came from a fundamentalist church, went to Moody Bible Institute, graduated from Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton College, got his Master's of Divinity at Wheaton College, went to, went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and got his doctorate at Princeton. He entered Moody as a fundamentalist. He left Moody as an evangelical. He left Wheaton as a skeptic, and now he teaches at Princeton as an infidel. Actually, he's down at uh, North Carolina Chapel Hill now from Princeton. He wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus. How many of you have seen that in the stores, Misquoting Jesus? It sold hundreds of thousands of copies. You know what he said in that book? He said, when I was at, I think it was Moody. It was either Moody or Wheaton. He identifies the school. He said, they taught us that we don't have, we don't know exactly what is in the Bible. And listen to what he said. He said, I just decided if God can't preserve his word, why should I believe he inspired it in the first place? He's right, isn't he? The difference is, I believe he preserved it. He has demonstrated that he preserved it. I told that to this young man. I went through all of this that I'm telling you, Origen and Jerome and the Peshitta and all of this. I went through the whole thing with him. What about the other languages? Well, in France, you had the Olivetan. In Spanish, you had the Rian Valera. And, you know, go through this whole thing of how God had preserved his word in other languages also. And I asked him, have you ever heard that before? Never. About to graduate writing his master's thesis from a Christian seminary and has never heard about the two lines of church history. Satan's done a pretty good job, hasn't he? Would you go to Genesis chapter 3 with me? I'm not saying anybody who uses a modern translation is demon-possessed. You know, I'm glad people just read the Bible. Amen? I'm just saying when people can't trust the Bible... It leads to that one world church. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now remember the law of first mention. The first time God introduces a subject that defines the subject throughout the rest of the Bible. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field 
which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, what are his first words? Yea, hath God said. What happened? Why'd they go back? Yea, hath God said. See, you've got the majority of Christianity that has absolutely no confidence in the Word of God. No confidence. That's where this whole emerging church movement is coming from. All of it. Let me tell you what God's Word means to me. God's Word is only... Remember, I I ran into two pastors down at the bookstore in Dayton last month, and I asked them if they believed the Word of God was true, and he said, no, it contains the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God when it speaks to you. What if it doesn't speak to you? Then it's not the Word of God. German higher criticism, neo-orthodoxy, everything that happened right here to bring about this is also bringing about this. You see, if we can't know what it says, then there's nothing to separate over. But if we do know what it says, there are some people that are preaching another gospel. We don't hate them. We don't. simple fact is, they're sending people to hell. We've got to identify it. The Bible says in Mark 16, 17, Mark, in Romans 16 and 17, mark them and avoid them. Two lines of church history. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have preserved your word all through these thousands of years.